When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This girl from the hood got two Emmys. What in the world is happening in my life? I remember this baby girl, and now she got two trophies? Two trophies? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, my name is Kirk Franklin, and I come to give you good words. Let's go. An award-winning journalist. That's right, she's an award-winning journalist. She was on TV back in Chicago on just the local news, kicking it. Um, I've been knowing her since back in the days of Underoos. Let me tell you something. Uh, 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 it was all a dream. I remember her, man. And I mean, she she was a hardworking soldier back then. Uh, one of the hardest working people in media. Over the last three decades of experience, she's guided viewers to some of the most significant news in recent history. I'm telling you, she's an executive producer and host of the Tamron Hall Show. I didn't even want to give her name away, but because the show is in her name, what else would I was going to do? Now in its fourth season, that's right. She got four seasons, not four, but four seasons up under her belt. And uh, she inspires everybody. She inspires me. She inspires everybody from her community because she's compassionate. She's smart. She's brilliant. She's quick. She's intentional. She's pragmatic. She's methodical. And her impeccable fashion says, I taught her everything she knows. I just need for you to know that she was studying my swag back in the 80s. And she just continued it. <laughs> She's been studying me for a long time. And I'm like, okay, Tamron, I'm going to give you the tricks of my secrets. And, uh, and, and, and now she's a fashion icon, fashion diva, all thanks to her little bro, Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome from Fort Worth, Texas, born and raised in the same city as your boy. She left. I didn't. I'm still up in here holding it down for her. Show some love. For the guru, Miss Tamron Hall. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> that intro, I, I want you for the rest of my life to just say that whenever <laughs> I walk in the room, yes. I want them to play it. No other intro will yes. do. My yes. way of stop six, but this is the stop that matters. Woo! I am finally here. I can't and, believe it. And ladies and gentlemen, you got to understand what stop six is. Stop six is the belly of the hood. It was the belly of just the streets. It was the block. Some of the biggest, some of the biggest deals went down on them corners in <laughs> stop six. And I cannot believe that this rose grew from the concrete, man. Uh, this is this is just so beautiful. And just to know uh, that we share the same same blood in our veins from yeah. the same city, same experience, yeah. but then watching you just take over media the way you have. I am I am a proud little bro. And uh, uh thank you for doing the show. As I said, well, it looked like prototype. a I, I mean, listen, you're the prototype, the blueprint, Jay-Z, if you will, of I mean, what is possible. It's true. And so I took the road of media, you took the road of mogul, 
And now here we ah. are. <laughs> but we're in the same boat. You're right. Fort Worth, Texas. I actually remember yeah. the first time I ever saw you. It, we So we share Lucille McDonald. And I know. My, could tell, she was my little girlfriend. She was my little she, girlfriend. And I remember her pointing you out. I think it was like sixth grade. And you had a red Michael Jackson jacket on. And ah. that's when I started to steal your fashion sense. <laughs> No, wow. everyone always grew up knowing of this legend and then to watch you manifest all of those dreams and become the man you are, the person you are, the leader you are. It's it's inspiring. And then I was blessed to have you as a guest on my show. I mean, it's crazy. And now yeah, I'm a guest yeah. on your show. It's yeah. it's a it's a remarkable yeah. thing. And thank you for that. You had me at a very difficult time. Mm-hmm. And and I promise you. If it wasn't for the history that I had with you, mm-hmm. I, I would have canceled that interview because it was in the middle yeah. of the uh, trauma I was facing with my son and yeah. and everything that I had to live out publicly as a father uh, uh, last year. And mm-hmm. because of my history with you, that was the only reason why yeah. I continued to do that interview because I would have canceled that because, yeah. you know, it was too much trauma. And if someone's listening doesn't know, it was when my son um, had recorded me using profanity uh, in an argument with him. My grown son, let me just make yeah. sure people understand, my yeah. grown 30-something-year-old son. Yeah. And um, it was a real embarrassing moment for me, a a, a real uh, challenging moment. But I had already promised Tamron that I was going to do her show for a totally different event. Yeah. We were going to yeah, be we were having doing a something. gospel hour. Yeah, yeah, we were having, we were a, having gospel a gospel hour. hour. Of just yeah. fun and happiness. Yeah, and music <laughs> and, and talking like we just started the conversation. And let me say... Uh, obviously, you're an honorable man and an amazing father. And as I already said, but, you know, people will cancel when things go bad and or things turn into a challenge. And you did not. And you kept your word. And it meant the world to me and my team that you trusted us enough in that vulnerable state. And I think that also speaks to why you've had this legacy and why you have the podcast and all the other things that you do, because you are the real deal. You are the authentic person that you present. And that's hard, including in that difficult moment. That was an authentic moment of pain shared between a father and son. And you went through that with us. And I think a lot of people saw themselves in you. I'm a parent now. My son is right on the other side of this wall. He is three years old. There will be a lot of days where I don't show up as the person I know that I am because when you Mm. love someone, you hurt for them and they have the ability, your child has the ability to hurt you in a way that no one can. No one can. When um, I remember when I first had my son, I was 48. I went through multiple rounds of IVF and the doctor said to me, I was asking all this advice, you know, once he was born, I had a C-section and he said, just enjoy him. And I thought, okay, Mm. that's easy enough. I mean, come on, look at this kid. He's adorable. He's mine. Of course it's Mm -hmm. easy. I have had so many sleepless nights Googling what age are they supposed to walk? How many Uh, words should an 18-month-old have? Wait a minute. (laughs) He didn't breathe right. I I mean, I look at the monitor. It sleeps near my head because the love you have of your child uh, is is like no other. And that that love comes with pain and it comes with challenges. So I appreciate it so much that you kept your word and you came on. But here's the most incredible thing is that families are going through this every day. Every day. And that's why you are are selfless. You were selfless in coming forward because I, you know, I've had people come on my show and try to do damage control. We know what damage control looks yeah, like, right? Yeah. All the comments that people sent in and tweeted and whatnot after no one ever thought, okay, Kirk Franklin is in damage control. It was never that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, again, 
I can say it. I won't let you say it. I call BS on people who act like they've never seen or heard anything like, oh my gosh, it's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life <laughs> said to a child. Oh, and, and by the way, that doesn't mean it's right, but don't no, right, right, pretend. Right, right, right. Don't pretend right. like it's right. so, like, give me a right. break. Right. And you know what was I funny had, to me, Tamara? What's what? funny to me is that I had people, there were people calling me saying, we could tell you've been in church too long because you didn't even do it right. You didn't even, <laughs> right. you didn't even put, well, you didn't even put that, that observation. I did. You didn't even put my that. mother could have taught you some skills in this area. Even as a matter of fact, I want to ask you this in the eighties, okay. because mm -hmm. you didn't see a lot of brown skinned women doing what you were mm -hmm. doing or what you dreamed of doing. Mm. What gave you the the unction and the ah. and the cocky fresh to think <laughs> that you could be able to rise and and you know the and you and I of hope. <laughs> the, audacity the audacity of hope. hope yeah like you and I didn't come from Atlanta no. we didn't come from Chicago yeah. we didn't come from uh, D.C. where maybe there were a couple yeah. of individuals that made it that looked our skin tone yeah. that we could. Uh, inspire and aspire to be, but you were you were from Fort Worth. There were no. Um, what was the lady that used to be on TV here? Iola Johnson. Iola Johnson. Yes. Iola well, that's Johnson. Exactly that point. That's yep. the point. My daddy. So we were living in Stop Six at the time, and we were getting ready to move um, right outside of. So first of all, everybody, you know, wanted to live in Forest Hills. There are yes. these neighborhoods. That these are aspirational yes. Black neighborhoods, yes. right? Middle class. And by aspirational, your mom or dad maybe worked at the post office. Yeah. And then you had, you know what I mean? It was like- Or at this GD. At GD. At GD. Yeah, and, exactly. At Bell Lockheed. Helicopter. A Lockheed or Bell <laughs> Helicopter. Yes, sir. <laughs> that they were factory workers or yeah. postal government workers who had just made it to that that point where your kid would be able to go to college, right? And that with a loan, right, by the way, with a Pell Grant, student loan, something, something, something. This is yeah. where we were, but it yeah. was aspirational, middle-class, Black um, black excellence, as we call it now. The stores yes. were owned by Black business owners. The dry cleaners, all of these things that um, have now transitioned in many neighborhoods were existing in our neighborhood and, and, and where we grew up. So my my grades, I just got into the magnet program, which back then was like gifted and talented or whatever these things that they'd call. Yeah. Yeah, it was and crazy. I was making C's. And my dad um, turned to me one day and he said, if you get your grades up, that could be you. And he pointed at the TV. And there was this woman with this big hair, this black woman with this baritone, almost like thick, rich voice. She had her blazer on. And it turned out to be this woman, Iola Johnson, who was the first black anchor yes. in Dallas, Fort Worth at yes. WFAA Channel 8. And yes. she, I was mesmerized. Her, everything about her, her confidence, her command. And, and much later in my life, I've had the great pleasure of meeting her and Did sharing you? this very story. Yeah. Because that's what, if you see it, you believe it. And part of when I um, was unceremoniously taken off the Today Show I remember being on the call with my mom that day and they had made me an offer I could refuse and that they wanted me to refuse quite honestly because they wanted to replace me um, with uh, another person. And I, it was a Tuesday and I, I prayed, I called my mom and I'm like, I don't have a backup plan. I am my backup plan. I've been in TV mm -hmm. for you know so many years, but I don't have legacy money. I don't have estate money. This is my plan. Mm -hmm. It's me. And I'm not married mm -hmm. at the time. It's me. And I knew I had enough that I'd say that I'd be okay, a little buffer, but I'm 47 at the time. What am I going to do? Mm. And I thought about 
every, and, and it's so, this is from the bottom of my heart. I thought about all the young black women who were in college right now, who said they looked up to me, like I look up to Iola Johnson. And mm. if, if I get beat, what chance do they stand? I'm the first black woman to anchor the Today Show in 62 years. I'm wow. now removed by to put on somebody that, you know, the audience did not respond to well. And now if I just go out in a puff of smoke, what chance do, does the kid at Howard or Temple yeah. University or wherever who's studying journalism? And yes. so that was a big part of the reason that I said, I got to create this talk show. I got to get up. I am not going to stay on this mat. I'm going to pull my best Rocky, Rocky two, whatever it is that you got in your arsenal. Uh -huh. I'm pulling it out because if I lose, I, I couldn't let them see me lose. And just because it matters, what you see matters. And me saying Iola Johnson mattered. And it's why I went matters. on to pursue this career. Mm -hmm, it does. It does. And anybody who says otherwise is not yes. telling you the truth. Yes, yes, yes. And it's funny that you and I remember those moments and watching her because I was first just blown away that a black woman with, with a name, Iola, yeah. was able to Iola. get- Iola. Yeah. Johnson. Yeah, Johnson. <laughs> That's like Katanji Brown. I mean, listen, let me tell you something. <laughs> listen, you knew who she was before she was who she was. <laughs> you didn't have to see yes. baby girl. And, and it's fun yes. because we're the same age. We remember uh, just mm -hmm. how inspiring that was seeing somebody that looked like us. And then every day, yeah. these young girls seeing you on a big morning show. And, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't even know the details Mm. of what you were saying until now. Like, I didn't get a chance to follow the mm. pivot and what was the transition. Um, yeah. How did you manage that public hive being in what was once your dream job and mm. celebrated as the, like you just said, and what, what did you yeah. say, over 60 yeah. years? 62 years of the Today Show history. And I was the first Black woman to, and I remember uh, my agent at the time who I actually fired for his bad advice. He said, there's no way they'll get rid of you. Are you kidding me? You're the first black and you're great at what you do. Every show that you're doing is rating. It's not like I'm not a token. I am there um, because I am doing a great job by all metrics and measures. But I'll tell you, Kirk, I, I, and I have not talked a lot about it publicly, but I remember being in the office with an executive and telling him, you keep moving the goalposts until it's invisible because you don't want me to kick. So I'm not going to play your sport. I'm not going to play your sport because everything that I, the week that I was taken off, I had hosted all three hours of the Today Show because Savannah Guthrie had gone on maternity leave. I filled in for Lester Holt on Nightly News. I'd hosted my own show on MSNBC, done my own hour at the Today Show. And basically all of their major programs that whole week I had hosted or anchored and all of them rated. And now you're telling me I don't have a place. You don't have room for me on your roster. Well, I'm not going to play your sport. And that day I decided I would never go into an office again and try to negotiate a contract. And I stopped doing that type of contract, meaning like I'm going to negotiate my dollars and cents. I'm not going to negotiate you letting me be on your team. Mm. I'm not going to stand on the sideline mm. and do the pick me. Mm. I will negotiate wow. the amount wow. that it takes to get me to be on your team, but I'm not going to say pick me, pick me, pick me. And that was a big pivotal moment for me. And as I said, I went home. I talked to my mother, who still lives in Fort Worth. You and her do. I come <laughs> <in> three months, <laughs> which I love my hometown. But um, my work requires me to live in New York. But no, I remember crying. I remember praying. I remember studying my bank account and regretting many, many purchases. Like, 
dang it, why'd I buy that Louis Vuitton? What was so, I thinking? <laughs> so, so, you know, I got to ask you this. You know, when people see, uh, when, whenever they see public individuals like you yeah. or, or like anyone else, you don't, you don't know in real time the emotions yeah. that they are experiencing or the, yeah. the, this major pivot. So yeah. were you sitting in your desk and got a call? No, I'll tell you, two things happened. Oh, I love this. I, you asked the best question. You know what? You should do this for a living. Uh, ah! two, <laughs> two things happened. The first thing I um, I was at, so the MSNBC building and the Today Show building uh, are side by side. And so I was leaving Today Show, running over at 45 minutes to make it in the chair for my MSNBC show, which started, I think, at 11 o'clock, whatever. As I'm getting off the elevator, running to the desk, I saw three executives leave the executive's office that I had been negotiating and trying to convince to let me stay. And every, I said, it's going down. I knew it. I knew it. And I started to shake. I started because I, I could, and they didn't see me. That was the best part. I saw them. They didn't see me. And they were walking out a united front that they were going to stand on what turned out to not be the best idea. So I see them leaving. And I remember saying, shore up, shore up, shore up. You know, I ran track my whole life. I'm like, you got it. You got to channel it. And yeah. I called my mom. I said, they're about to tell me they're making a change. Because how do you know? I said, I saw them leaving. She's like, what? I said, I saw them leaving the office. How do you know this? I said, I know it. I know it. I know. Anyway, I get ready oh. to go on air. It is one minute into my broadcast. And my then agent texts me. And he said, uh, he texts me while I'm live on TV. And he said something to the effect of, they've decided to make a change. Uh, they want you to stay, but you won't have a role or a title. They're trying to, it was like this real, and I, the, I'm reading it while interviewing someone. I don't even know who, I, at this point I blacked out. So they could have been talking about the end of the world. I wouldn't oh have known it. Gosh. And I'm reading this live and I slide my phone down. I took a deep breath. And then I told, I wrote back and said, I'll pass. And I don't remember the, re I anchored the whole hour. I don't while remember you're on it. TV. I'm on TV. And my hands are trembling. I'm trying to text my mom. Uh, I've never actually told the story because I'm actually holding it for one day when I write my own book, my memoir about my life. I am um, texting my mom. I screen grabbed it, sent it to my mom. She's trying to talk to me. It's in real time on live TV. And I'm having an emotional and mental meltdown because I've worked every day since I was 14 years old. Toys R Us in Hearst Euless Bedford off the Ooh. side of the freeway was my first job. <laughs> I um, remember that one. I remember yes, that one. I worked since I was 14. So now I'm 47. And the first time I worked all through college and now I am losing my job live reading it at all. I, I, I do remember wanting to look in the camera and say, you know what they're doing to me? You know what they're <laughs> doing to me? And then I thought that might look crazy. So I won't do that. But I don't remember the last show because I had a mental health breakdown. Because my whole life, everything I believed that I was meant to do at that moment was gone. And I didn't even have time to worry about how humiliating or whatever these emotions of ego that one might go through. I was just like, I, I'm done. Like, wow, oh this is God. happening. And I, I remember, and this is so funny too, oh leaving the building that day. And there's a photograph a paparazzi person took of me. And I don't know 
how or why I, again, these things that happened, I had this coat on that I love, Kirk. I would splurge on this black and white, beautiful coat. And I had these beautiful black patent leather um, uh, Louis Vuitton boots on. And I'm walking across the street. And in my eyes, you see, I had died. Like my outfit was so fly, it makes me sick looking at it today. But in the eyes, in the eyes, that phrase dead behind the eyes, I was dead behind the eyes going across that street. And it's so on the exterior from afar, you see this beautiful black and white coat, these boots, the whole thing, my hair, my white dress on. And I see in that photo now, I was dead behind the eyes. I couldn't believe that that had happened to me. Tamron, how do you stay mentally healthy Hmm. in such a cutthroat business? You know, you surround yourself. My dad used to say, birds of feather flock together. You don't see penguins with flamingos. You see Hmm. penguins with penguins. And flamingos with flamingos. And he means by that is I I have the same best friends since I was four years old. Wow. My crew is the same people from middle school and elementary, from Glencrest. I can name all the like these country people. <laughs> like Dunbar Middle. We're yes. naming all the schools in Fort Worth. But y'all had the cute I girls. Am. All of those schools were yep. the cute girls. So finished. They were, we were. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I have my same friends and I surround myself. Uh, I hope each and every day with people who root for me and I'm able to root for them in the same way. I have friends that have had different walks of life and, you know, they see us on TV and they see our lives, but they know our hearts and they know us. So I'm very fortunate at 51 to surround myself with good people. My husband is amazing. He's my friend. Um, He's my soundboard. He is wonderful. I talk to my mother 1,500 times a day. She's on a cruise right now somewhere. And we're both going through withdrawals because we FaceTime all day long and she's got bad Wi-Fi on this cruise. <laughs> but I think that's that's my sanity. I go to therapy. Um, mm. During the pandemic, I really did. I did a lot of um, uh, Zoom therapy because I was doing the show from home, trying to mm. juggle having a toddler and mm-hmm. my whole family infrastructure and support system like everybody else's had been disrupted. But I do therapy. I, I meditate. I do transcendental meditation. I meditate two times a day for 20 minutes. Mm. Um, and that helps me a lot. But I just, I also, I have cutoffs. Like when I'm overwhelmed, I will tell people it's shutdown time. Don't call me. Mm. I got to go. Like I'm very, and sometimes it's not well received because people want your time when they want your time. But I have learned if I'm underwater, I'm just drowning. And yes. I need to stop. So I'm really intentional and really clear with my team, with my family, when I need to just pull out. I say, guys, I don't want to talk about it. Even my mom, she'll call me. My mother is that kind of like, she thinks she's Chris Jenner. She's like, look at the ratings. You're number one. They didn't put that in the article. I'm like, uh, mom. And I say, mom, I don't want to talk about the show. I don't want to talk about anything. I love cooking. I cook probably three, four times a week. I love like my, we get our wine, I start cooking, we start playing music and that's just how I reset. But I, I have learned boundaries. I have, and that's something we talked about before, you know, when you were on the show, having boundaries is so critical in one's life. And so I've learned to have boundaries and that helps me mentally. With that, we're going to take a quick break. And let's get back into it. But how do you do that as the boss? And even even a parent like like you've got to pass some nuggets on to people listening, because like, how do you set those boundaries when you are having to curate 
all of the things around you, like all of the execution and all of the deliverables are based on you being present. So how do you do that as a boss and as a parent? I learned, Al Roker gave me sage advice about learning to say no. And and it's hard to say no, but I actually just had an incident two days ago with an employee and I said, I'm telling you this out of love. Here's what we must do. And in the moment she was like, but, 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 but I said, I'm going to give you a beat. I want you to think about it. I'm going to think about it. And then we'll reset. She called me just a few, right before this. And she said, you know what? You're right. I thought about it. You're right. And I said, I knew you were coming to this conclusion because it's logical and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I, the bottom line is the power of saying no is not a rejection. People see the word no as a rejection and it is not. Sometimes mm. a no is let's figure out a different way. Let's take a beat. Let's do this. And so for me, I have 250 employees on the show. I just wrote this novel as the Wicked Watch. I just finished the second in this series and I have another show on Court TV. If I say yes to everything, then I'm not showing up for anyone. Mm -hmm. So I have to have the power to say no. And Mm -hmm. I believe that one of the things that I advocate, especially with women, Black women who run businesses, who run their households, who run the world, honestly, is that everyone wants to call us bossy, but everyone wants to be our boss. <laughs> and I'm like, no. And so, oh, wow. you know, I say to my team all the time, how would you feel if a white man said this? I say mm-hmm. it and I'm mean or I'm rejecting you, but a white executive says it and they're a go getter and he knows what he's leading. Well, I'm leading. And sometimes leading is saying no. So I set boundaries. Um, I am always an open door. I always want my team to know you can call me and and I'm here for you in any way that I can be. But the best that I am is when I set boundaries and when I'm able to say no. And when you give me the space to lead as you would a white executive. And that's hard because only now are we seeing more black women be executives in these rooms that we hadn't traditionally been yes. in. Yes. How, how old were you or at what point in your career were you first introduced to these constructs of the image of the black woman in the corporate space that you don't want to be too loud. You don't want to be too this. You don't want to be too that. Like when were you first introduced to all of these limitations Mm. that society automatically puts on women of color? Oh my gosh. I mean, from day one, but, but they're from day one of entering the business I knew, uh, but I'll give you a couple of key examples. When I was in, um, Dallas, Fort Worth, and I got assigned the gang unit. And I'm like, I might know some people, but I don't know people. You know? <laughs> like, right? but and ladies and I'm gentlemen, like, ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, whoever that was that assigned Tamron Hall to the gang unit, because we know Tamron Hall, baby, she don't know nobody. I was like, she don't know the people that we know in a gang. <laughs> I was like, um, I, you know, so now I'm supposed to be the gang expert, right? Oh Just because God. I'm black. Oh but, my gosh. But one major moment happened. I was with a producer and we were trying to get this interview and this person was being very complicated and da 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 da. And the producer I was with happened to be white. And uh, the, the individual um, had committed a crime and they were very aggressive toward us. And I kind of said, well, hey, let's all calm down. You know, I'm not paid by the word. I'm not paid by the story. I'd love for you to talk to me. I do my little reporter hustle thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I get the interview. 
The producer goes back to our executive in charge and goes, oh my God, you should have seen Tamron. She said, uh-uh, we're not going to do it. Uh. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what? And I, I stopped him. I said, I've never done this. Tamron, can you and do it one more time? You- just Tamron, can you do it one more this time just for did. me? This- this Do it one more time just for your brother. He goes, uh-uh. He turned me into Shanaynay. I wish you would. I mean, I was like, <laughs> and no offense to anybody who does that. But, but that ain't you. I didn't do that. That's but not in you. His mind, in his mind, and he meant it as a compliment. He wasn't saying it like oh my. behind my back, like, oh, that's how black women talk. He meant it like, oh, Tamron shut it down and she got the interview and she said, wait a minute. Uh, 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 this <laughs> nice. I was like, I did not do this. Oh my and gosh. So I was like, oh my gosh. And I, I thought, wow, that's how his mind saw me asserting myself. Mm. I was now this caricature mm. that he saw me as. And then, you know, at other instances in my life where I'm in a meeting and I remember a white executive telling me, you're intimidating me. And I'm like, wow. you, I'm on the, I'm in the small chair. So he's, it's his desk in his office. I'm in the small chair. He's in the big chair and has the multiple zeros and me just sitting up and looking him square in his eye. He said, you're intimidating me. How do you and not lose like, it, Tamron? Tamron, how do you, you not when lose, you lose it? it? Because you don't win when you lose it. You lose when you lose it. Because mm. I, I have Say that one more time. Say that one more time for somebody listening. when you lose it. You don't win when you lose it. And so I have mastered the art of being still. When I met with any kind of like, uh, I go in because actually they tell you to be more afraid of the person who goes quiet. The, the, the person who's yes. like, put them up, put them up. You just yes. can't fight. It's the one that's yes. sitting there just nodding. Uh-huh. You're like, Part mm-hmm. ways. And so when I'm yep. in those situations, I also, and here's a trick that I do, because I, I have a tendency, especially like anybody, you want to defend yourself, right? You're in a meeting and you're dealing with a workplace issue and you want to defend yourself. I always get a notepad and I write down to keep from interrupting. And then I surgically dissect everything that that person said in that conversation. So the next time you're in an office situation and you're they're giving you their list of things about you, or there's a conversation where you feel the need to defend yourself, just grab a piece of paper and write down the thoughts. You'll get back to it. And then when they've had their time, it's like Maxine Waters saying, I'm reclaiming my time. When it's time for you to reclaim your time, you calmly and surgically Mm. let them know what you have to say. And that doesn't mean we're not being authentic because I do believe, you know, obviously the stereotypes of us being passionate people, it's not a stereotype, it's true. Um, culturally, we had to love hard. We had to fight hard. You have everything. But if you keep punching at the brick wall, your hands end up bloody. And so for me, I say, I don't go into meetings punching anymore. I don't go in making the case or pleading the case. I go in with the surgical and deliberate mindset of I am here because I'm supposed to be in this room Uh and I'm going to make sure you know strategically that I can think faster, smarter, wiser than you. And that doesn't come from me having to push. I don't have to push. I'm going to sit there and be methodical about it. And it's hard. It's hard. We know, especially as Black women, what people, some, 
what some people have been led to believe because we are not represented in our true authentic self. That's why movies like when you see A Waiting to Exhale or shows like Girlfriends or Living Singles, where you see multidimensional Black women and Black families resonate because it is easy to believe that we're a monolith. It is easy to believe of the one type of Black experience is all experience. And it's not. We are many, many things. And I, and I know the weight of it. That's why I'll, I'll tell you this real quickly. I know I'm being long-winded and it's your show. No, no, this is beautiful. To you, but this is there's, beautiful. A, there's a whole, there's a whole you know, push to get more Black executives and decision makers and, and in these rooms. But the companies then don't offer us the support to thrive because we are micromanaged in ways that mm. our counterparts who are not of color are not in many cases. There, there's statistics about it. I just watched a, even a clip on young Black boys in preschool and how young Black boys are disproportionately labeled problem children when they're doing the same things as other children. And so there was a study out of Yale that showed teachers who were reviewing behavior issues. So they had like a one, one Black child boy, um, a white boy, and a couple of other kids. I believe almost all of them were non-Black. And the teachers studied and monitored the young black boy more than anybody else looking for behavioral problems. By the way, white and black teachers, when they said, who's the problem child, studied the black boy. So we see it, whether it's believing that black boys are disproportionately more prone to bad behavior or that black women are disproportionately more prone to acting out or being aggressors in the workplace. We know the stereotypes. And they exist and they hurt us in every way and they hurt our children. So for me, I try my very best to always show up as you always try to show up as representatives of who we are and not who people want to believe we are so that our children don't experience the fact that more Black children are suspended in pre-K and kindergarten than at any other time. What is a four-year-old going to do that requires, I get emotional, requires them to be suspended expelled yes. from school. Yes. Were you already going in thinking that four-year-old is going to be a bad four-year-old and a disruptive 14-year-old and a jail by 44? And we can't let society think these things about us. It it it, it is for me as a black man who has always been a major supporter of female leadership because I was adopted by a older black woman who showed me so much power and influence. So that naturally shifted the trajectory of my life and and just made me very, very pro-leadership of women. And I'm not just saying it because you're here and you want to say, this is how I literally am wired and it's the framework of how I execute. It's I just think that there is something very powerful about the compassionate, powerful and and very present leadership of women of color. And to hear that even in 2022 and 23, that women of color still having these hurdles that no other community has to jump over, it can be daunting. And it can be fatiguing. It is, and we lead, we're more, pro, we are more likely to be in positions that, that we lead the family financially and mentally and, and emotionally. But yet we are still, even when they talk about women in pay, I just did a conference about women in pay and, and the audience was startled when I made the point of how much more, I mean, we talk about women and men, mm-hmm. how about mm-hmm. white women versus women of color? Yes, We still make significantly less in the same jobs as uh, than white women. So we have this whole conversation about pay e- equity and we're talking it through the lens of gender. But then when you put all the women in the room, are our white female allies fighting for Black women as they fight for themselves. Yes. And I brought this up in this room. And it's not to 
ostracized or to make anyone feel bad, but it's a fact. And yes. so I tell my team of diverse producers and we have, a, a, I mean, our team is, is, is my dream, which it's led by an executive producer who is phenomenal young woman that I met early on in her career. And now I'm blessed to have her as my executive producer now. And we talk about these things with our staff and who are mostly women that here I am in a position to lead a show. I'm going to lead. I'm not going to let somebody shackle me down out of fear of being a stereotype of what they might think a Black woman leader is, but I yes. want them to go on and be part of my legacy. I want them, I, as I said to a young um, woman that I was mentoring, I said, I want to look at the credits of a film when I'm in the old nursing home in, in Stop Six, and I want to see your name wow. in lights. I want to say I helped her get there. And yeah. those are real conversations. And as Black women, you know, we have to embolden ourselves to make sure we help as many Black women as possible get into the seats that I'm in and well beyond that. There was a period of time that that when you talk about Black women on TV and especially those that were executive producing their own shows, there was only two. It was you and Wendy, right? And, 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 and give me just a snapshot of that moment yeah. in time for you. Just some of the challenges that you were going through establishing your own show and then even trying to keep it on the air because like you know so well, it's one thing to get something greenlit. It's a whole nother <laughs> thing you know, to yeah. try to keep that bad boy on the air. Like just kind of walk us through what oh that was like gosh, in that moment in time. It's grueling. It still is. You know, it's a constant, you know, I mean, I, when I was pitching the show and, and before Disney bought it, I had to hear executives go through every host that had failed and 99% of them were white. And I knew that they were saying, if they didn't make it, how are you going to do it? Right. And, right. you know, you have to laugh it off, go, well, you know, well, let's see. But in my mind, I'm like, uh, listen, if there's, my mom says, if it's one in the million, why can't I be the one? That's dope. And so I'm like, you can name 500 people. I don't care. I'm going to figure out a way to make this work. But, you know, going back to Wendy, her legacy is tremendous. And it's not the kind of show that I would do. Mm -hmm. And I've always been open about that. But uh -huh. for her to stay on for 10 years, yes. a woman in a chair yes. by herself, yes. being the messy auntie that we all kind of know in every yes. hair salon. And yes. you're like, oh, Lord, did she say that? Yes. You know, as I said, I'm not going to mince words. It is not the type of show that I would do. But I have mad respect for the mm -hmm. fact that she stayed authentic to her brand that had been around for far longer than the show. Mm -hmm. And and then have... um the struggles that she's had publicly and still try to get out there and do the show. But one of the, the complicated things about when I got into the market, I had several executives, again, wanting me to be Wendy because wow. it, they only in their minds had one black woman. You know, this, this is what black women do. So can't you do hot topics? You can't talk about, what about? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I can't. And, and that's even after the Oprah Winfrey legacy of showing, really? you know, yeah. this substance yeah. of talk show rather than say, well, are you trying to be Oprah? Which is a be a fair question to ask anybody. You're trying. No, they like you can't do this. And I remember being in a meeting with an executive, and and that same kind of uh uh came up, and I was like, what? Like, no. And people want to know what you think about the fight that happened with <sighs> so and so and so and so. And I was like, no, we're not doing that. And even now, we're entering in this fourth season, and the theme of this year is the golden hour. And I was very intentional in saying that because, you know, they say the most beautiful, the sun shines is that that golden hour when mm -hmm. you don't need the Instagram filter, as yes. Erica Badu said, I don't yeah. need a filter. You yeah. just stand in the right sunlight and it shines so beautifully. Yeah. And I wanted the hour of the show 
in its fourth season to feel like the golden hour where you can be inspired, where you can learn, where you can laugh, where you can live and, and live your life, as Jill said, you know, living my life like it's golden. So that's the theme of this season. It's living your life like it's golden, that golden hour. And, and that's been difficult because people do want, as you know, listen, I'm not telling you anything. Yeah. Telling you. You're the masterclass on how to stay intentional. You come out with a unexpected um, presentation of gospel music and this vibrant and complex way of reaching young people. And everybody wasn't happy about that. Not at all. People still sometimes <laughs> like, wait a minute, let me still, see how it is. Still Fly today. suits on out there. Still I today. saw a viral clip of you the other day and they don't understand that he can be gangster. He can be what was in I his doing? spectacle what? Tom Ford glasses. I don't know. He was dancing in some tight pants. That's what ah! I thought. <laughs> Why you got to tell people my pants are tight? You could have just yes, whispered that to me. Listen, you could have typed that. <laughs> Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles could see them pants was tight. Ah! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I can neither confer nor deny <laughs> that, that my britches was tight. The I can't britches. do that. And with no socks and loafers, just looking so amazing. But you, <laughs> you know, you broke this mold. And how did you get through? I mean, you ask me, here you are. You're seeing, this is pre-Twitter, by the way. So you're yes, breaking Lord. the internet before the internet. And well, you're making people shake in their boots. Like, I just saw this minister go off about Beyonce's church girl. They oh, were going Lord. off on you before yes, that song. Yes, yes, yes. And there was no How did you media. handle it? Well, first of all, like you, as soon as I'm finished with this interview, I'm going to go see my therapist. So, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've been in 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 therapy, in and out of therapy, I'd say for almost 20 years, and it's been very beautiful mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can because, I ask you, know, you when the first time you went? What is there? Is there is there something you can share about that moment where you said, "This is what I need." And ladies and gentlemen, this is what makes her excellent at her job. <laughs> Did you see how quickly this girl shifted seats and moved that microphone from my hand to hers? No, no, no. Listen, listen, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that that was a master class. I'm talking, I'm talking low because that's how successful white men in these positions do. They always get that low white man voice. It's a very low, it's a very low Caucasian voice. And I'm doing the Caucasian voice. She shifted seats. Yes, she did. And she grabbed my microphone. And now I am, instead of the interviewer, I am now the interviewee. I will proceed. I will proceed. <laughs> Meanwhile, my dog has come. Look at my dog. She's like, what just happened? <laughs> he, he, heard my boy, he heard that Caucasian little no, no, white man voice. My calming dog, Exodus, just moved over here. She's like... He heard that calming Caucasian voice. Um, you know, you know, it's, I think that like 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 so many people that have been blessed with the microphone and a stage, it it exposes who you are. Mm -hmm. It exposes what's broken. It exposes what's what's not broken. And I think that uh, uh, success in any definition of it just reveals those areas that that may be hiding that that mm. may be hidden and and that you don't know how to always mm. execute them and so 
uh, whether it's adoption trauma or abandonment mm. trauma or being, you know, being thrown away trauma or religion trauma, you know, yeah. uh, you you have all these things that you find yourself having to work through. And then now you are responsible for this woman, these children, these babies, and and all of these different fabrics. And, and you're you're responsible for all these singers and musicians and mm. and and people are looking for you to be the oracle of God. Yeah. And it's like that's too much. And so you find yourself uh, needing to be deconstructed and and needing to uh, deal and address with those areas where the holes are. And there's been a lot of them. And I think every level of life, success, like right now, we're empty nesters. And so yeah. now the empty nesters is a whole nother level of experience mm-hmm. that me and my wife are experiencing. So yeah, it's, first of all, did I answer the question? You did, actually, no, you did. I, and I, now you have me crying. And you, you answered, but you pivoted a little bit. I'll tell you that part. But what you okay. heard in your voice is the sincerity, because what you're saying is there was a weight it was a lot. Yes. And you were handling yes. and juggling a lot. And yeah. in that moment, you recognized that you had to execute self-care in the form of therapy because you'll break. Yeah. You, you, I mean, yes. that's the thing about, I was just talking to Jamil Hill and we we're talking about the notion of resilience and how it is a compliment to say, Kirk, you're so resilient or Tammy, you're so resilient. But sometimes I don't want to be resilient. I don't want to have to tell you all my trials and tribulations. I want to be able to talk about my joy. And I want my son to not always say, gosh, I remember seeing my mom always so sad and, you know, carrying the burden. Uh, We want to be able to pass these joyful moments to our children. And I think a lot of times society expects Black people to struggle. It expects us to always have it hard and always have a story to tell. And sometimes... It's it's valuable. Of course it is. You know, people want to know how you got back up and how you got over. I mean, that's the construct of gospel music, right? Is the difficulty and how yeah. you get over. But I'd like the course about the part when you finally got over to be joyous and a little yeah, longer yeah. than the yeah, struggle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's yes, why even yeah. on our show, I, I want people to tell how hard or whatever their challenge, but I want to get to the inspiration. And that's what you've done in your music. You got to the inspiration. And I think that that's a very mm. important thing as we talk about what we've been through in our lives from Stop Six and Fort Party Worth and all of these things. But we have, ah! <laughs> well, we have joyful lives. Well, as we have joyful lives. As I try, ladies and gentlemen, to grab the microphone back, as I try, Slide like I said, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, 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 yeah. I try because it's in the hands of a master craftsman right now. So I'm going to try to grab that thing. Uh, you haven't. Talking about, talking about, <laughs> no, no, no. The ladies and gentlemen, if you notice, I didn't grab it. She passed it back. See, that's what I'm saying. That's, <laughs> I have no power. I have no power. It's the power of the black woman. That's what it oh is. Oh, my God. How was it for you? You talk about gospel music. And you talk yeah. about this uh, this, this uh, thing that yeah. you see in me. Like, yeah. how was it for you? Were you raised in church back yeah. in the day? Did you go to church back yeah. in the day? Yeah. What was and the name yeah. of the church that you went to back in the Beth day? Beth Eden Missionary Baptist Church. You went to Beth Eden? I did. I did. Ladies and gentlemen, this girl been around the uppity blacks all her life. <laughs> That is not true. That was an uppity black church. 
That was not. My mother was a single mom at 19 years old, and that was the first church that she joined. But we, in fact, we just, and I should make the point, we just lost um, the only minister that I knew as a child, Reverend B.R. Daniels, just passed away, a legendary minister in our community. And he he baptized me and he christened and and, and, and dedicated a dedication for Moses as well. But now that I grew up, um, you know, as I said, my mother always um, made sure we were in vacation Bible school in the summer. And now I just realized they couldn't afford daycare. So everybody got vacation Bible school. <laughs> that, is, that is such a scam. It's like, yeah. okay, vacation Bible school. That's called, yeah. we can't afford nobody. And nobody want to keep yeah. y'all. And everybody yes. working. So we go yes. to vacation Bible school. Vacation yes. Bible school. Uh, you know. Girl, and so girl, you're so much. Let me tell you something. Me and you are so mm-hmm. much cut. From this it's a scam together. This is it's a crazy. Scam. Vacation now, Bible school is a scam. <laughs> did, did you sing in church? Did you sing oh, in the yes. kids' choir? Did you? Of course. I, I was an usher and I would oh, complain God. about the stockings itching. And then <laughs> I, I was in the uh, choir with General Hamilton. I think it's his name, General. No, 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 no. My General Hambrick. General Hambrick. General Hambrick. Ron Daniels could, was our sing. Yes. You can sing and play the piano. And so, no, I grew up, but it was never. You know, I I am not a, my son loves the piano. My son can sing. He is three. And I'm like, I'm about to become his manager. But I um, I went to church like any other kid, begrudgingly, you know, but you do recognize you remember foundationally. Your, uh, do do mm-hmm. you remember a song that you sang as a kid in, in, in the uh, kids' choir? Do I remember? God is, the Lord is the span of strength of my life. My life. He moves all pain, pain misery, misery Promise to keep me, keep me never to never leave to me, leave me <laughs> never ever fall short on his word. I've got to, don't you do this to me. <laughs> come on, come on, so stop. Uh, you know what? Is this microphone your team sent me working? Test one, two. I want to go with him with when him, he comes when back. He comes come on. Back. I come too I far, come too far and, I and I never come, never come, never come back. back. Where is the auto tunes? Where can I have that version? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Cameron Hall just gave us bars. Cameron Hall just gave us vocal bars. Those are not the bars I usually give because Listen. I'm the crime report. I'm behind bars with a lot of people. <laughs> Do you see this? Your boy Kirk That's was able terrible. to get the legend. No, to hum us a couple of bars. Let me tell you hum, something. Hum? Really? Is that what your team lied to me? And I'm going to say that. They told me auto-tunes. They told me T-Pain was going to be here. Where is T-Pain? Where is T-Pain? I don't know. We don't know where T-Pain is. We don't know. We don't know. Was there ever a time that you felt any trepidation to ever talk about your faith openly as a journalist? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, especially in news because... um. People are from many different faiths, right? My husband yeah. happens to be Jewish, and he's practicing mm-hmm. um, um, Jewish it, member it of. Tell him I said hi. I will. He loves you. Loves you so much. Um, but I, um, yeah, and 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 so for me, being a quote unquote journalist, there are all these rules about you know not talking about your religion, um, really trying to be a blank slate so that people didn't believe you were biased, and mm-hmm. and. When I got the talk show, that was actually one of the very first things that I said I would not do, which is why when we invited you on the show, we were doing a gospel hour. And I wanted to talk to, you know, the legend of gospel music and then talk about people you love. We wanted to curate this whole hour just of music. And we've done it now twice. 
Um, Because it is, because my faith doesn't mean I'm trying to change your faith or what you believe Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it's my personal journey. And I I think the reason why I was so deliberate with this talk show and making sure that this was a part of it is that, not to say that I'm preaching to anybody, but if I'm allowed to take off my masks and I'm able to be myself and then you take off yours and you're able to be yourself, then we are keeping it real. We like to say keeping it real. What is keeping it real? But if I'm yes. expecting you to mask up and armor up and not be you and yes. not talk about who you are, then we're both being phony. So for yeah. me to be real with the audience, I had to say, this is my faith. This is what I believe. You know, it was tough just as it was. Listen, when I originally said my husband was white, I knew people were going to be like, what? You know, and there was going to have different said people say things. And but at the end of the day, this is the person that's in my life. The majority of men that I've dated in my life have been black and and by a great number. But this is the person who happened to at that time in my life match up with my my journey. And that's why we are mm-hmm. together. But I knew coming forward with that was not going to be, you know, why uh, uh, something that everybody wanted to hear. Thankfully, the vast majority of the people we call the TAM fam, there was no judgment. They're like, okay, well, that's our business and move on. So we're at that point. And the same with my faith. I talk about it. There, there was no big explosion of, oh my gosh, Tamron Hall said she's a Christian or Tamron Hall posted mm-hmm. something. My dog is all over your microphone. Do I have to send That's these okay. microphones back to your team? Because <laughs> now it has Bernadoodle slobber on it. But That's okay. no, That's okay. it was important okay. for me to do that. So I'm just being myself. I mean, as I said, with the IVF at first, you know, I was like, gosh, do I go through this whole journey of, of my IVF? Because I also recognize that it costs a lot of money to go through IVF. And so mm. now suddenly, you know, I am putting myself in a very, um, I don't like saying the word, in an economic category that mm. a lot of women, you know, are not in. Because it doesn't, it's not covered by insurance. But I said, what I will do is say, yes, I'm in a position where I can afford it, but I'm going to use my voice to make sure companies recognize that this is unfair. This mm. is unfair. And women should be able to get the medical treatment they deserve whether it's fertility, whether it's aftercare of birth, whatever. We did a whole show on medical gaslighting and the number of Black women who go into medical offices and are told it's in their head. How many women go undiagnosed wow. with lupus because they're told it's in their head? How many Black women in this country still die after childbirth? Tanya Lewis Lee, Spike Lee's amazing and brilliant talent wife. She has a documentary called Aftershock where it features two or three young Black men who lost their wives and their, their wow. partners after childbirth because doctors didn't believe them. So on one hand, I could say, okay, I'm not going to rip this mask off and talk about my IVF for all of these reasons, but I am because me speaking up and then me telling the truth that people who want to go through this should be able to afford it and companies should pay for it and how Black people are left out of the conversation of IVF far too often was what I chose to do. And that's a big part of the faith and everything. That is very informative. I, I, I had no idea that that was something. That oh, the numbers are a, staggering. Yeah, oh, that, I just that, gave that, you a leg shot. My dog just made the. the uh, that's that's <laughs> okay. That's okay. That's okay. Tell the dog that we appreciate him. We- <laughs> Stop it. I'm just glad you got nice legs. You know what I'm saying? I'm- <laughs> this is the first for me. I am doing an interview, and my dog is trying to eat the microphone. Stop it! And I want people to know, ladies and gentlemen, not only did she marry a man who was white. <laughs> Not only is she marry a man who is also Jewish, but he is my height. He is short. Now, yes, yes. Now, we, shorty, short. 
Yes. Can we talk sure. about that? Because Tamron, you know, like, uh -huh. like, ladies and gentlemen, you guys have seen Tamron. Tamron is like a model. She's tall. Oh, Tamron please. beautiful. Tamron got pretty teeth. All of her teeth look good. They all even. You know what I mean? Tamron, you know what I'm saying? You know, nice cheekbones. She got great hair. And her husband is little like me. I have found myself attracted to shorter men pretty much what? my entire life. I know. Why? What is Why? that? I don't know. I think it's because short men have a confidence and a swagger because I think you you go in knowing that people think you're short. And so you go in having, it's like the Joe Pesci prince. You know, I've always found myself um, more attracted to amazing, men. and I've never said that. You're getting all my business on this show because <laughs> I'm the homie. I'm the homie. Yeah, no, I think that <sighs> short men move in a way that is just I I rock with it. I don't know. It's my thing. I don't know. <laughs> Tamara, how tall are you? I'm like five eight, five seven and a half. Five eight, and he's five, what seven. five? He's four, five four four four. <laughs> for <ver> <laughs> hey, listen, first of all, I'm walking away from this interview so encouraged. I feel so much better by myself. I feel so much stronger and did taller you, by I, myself. I'm assuming my son is going to be short. So when when did you know you were short? I did not. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, she just took the mic from <laughs> with my Caucasian men voice. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, Tamara, I did not realize I was short. Uh-huh. Until I became a public figure. Like, what? like in high at high school, my height was never an issue with the young ladies. I uh -huh. never had problems with the young ladies. <laughs> I never walked around thinking, oh my God, I'll never get a girlfriend because I'm little. You know, that was never an issue. It yeah, wasn't yeah. until I started hearing people say, like, like I could hear people say if I'm in the airport on say it's like, oh, he's short. Short. <laughs> And so, oh, who are they talking I, about? You're like, yes, who, are they, who are they talking about? Yes. If, if, if I never had a girl say to uh -huh. me, I ain't going to date your little ass. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I ain't never had a girl. <laughs> you know, I ain't never had a girl ever say, yes, ladies and gentlemen, Kirk just said little ass. Just yeah, go and put yeah, it that, That's fine. Yeah, it's okay. And so, it's okay. And so the fact that you are this tall, beautiful woman that is attracted to little dudes, there's hope I in the world. I say little dudes. I'm saying short dudes. <laughs> Like it's the same dudes. semantics, no, semantics, uh, I mean, but I do. <laughs> think about all of the short, I mean, think about all of the short guys that like are legendary because you have, you walk in a space, Tom Cruise, Sylvester Stallone. Um, Those guys are short. Yeah. Legendary short. I Prince, did not know that. Prince is well, was short. I know Prince is baby man size. I know he's like yeah, little toddler tiny, size. Tiny, tiny, tiny. So, Prince was toddler no. size. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Prince was toddler size. Now, how did you, how have you and your husband balanced this interfaith relationship? I think that's kind of interesting. How have y'all done that dance? Yeah, that's interesting because I didn't know my husband was so deeply rooted in his faith until we were already kind of locked in. And I, it wouldn't have made a difference. <laughs> it wouldn't have made a difference. But um, no, so we celebrate all the Jewish high holidays. And we also celebrate um, all of my Christian holidays and all of my practices. Mm. And well, you know, and, and I joke with my husband, I said, you know, 
you bet on the wrong team. One of us is wrong and it's not me. So it's like, <laughs> ah! so sorry. We make jokes about it, but you know, it hasn't, you know, we have not, and I'll be very, very honest with you and only you in this, we have not sat down and said, okay, what does this really mean for Moses, right? Our son, what does this mean for him? And because I don't know the answer to that. I know my mm-hmm. faith and I know, and of course I, I believe in my faith and I, and I, and I, because question, I'm, but I, you know, he listens. One of the proudest moments of my life, I happened to be very close to Aretha Franklin over the years. And and one of the saddest things was that she never got a chance to meet Moses. But recently um, I was listening to a Spotify playlist and Natural Woman came on and, and my son stopped in his tracks and he loves music. I mean, he is music centric. He's music inspired. He loves, he knows every song. He stopped and just stared. And I was like, that's my baby right there. You know? and, he just, <laughs> and he loves listening to gospel. I mean, he loves all music, but I don't know, Kirk. And I, and I said I was going to start like getting books on how interfaith marriages govern with children. And my husband has never just mm. said, okay. But his family, they're very, they are very deeply rooted in their faith. And both families were happy that I named him Moses. Um, my mother, obviously, because the only prophet recognized by seven religions. But as much as my mom is a Christian, his parents are Jewish and they are, wow. we have Seder dinner. We break the fast, things I'd never heard of in my life. And it's like the whole thing. And it has never been a problem, but I'm sure, and I'm being honest with you, at some point, my son will say like, what what is this? What's happening what, here? You know, what is we doing? What is we doing? What is and we doing? Am I going what, to what church is, or synagogue? What, what, what is, is we doing, doing today? <laughs> and I think that historically, just what yeah. black people and Jewish people even historically have experienced is not yeah. shocking that two people from these different spaces can fall in love. And you know, yeah. because we historically have so many uh, emotional touch points mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that that define our sojourners as a humans, right? And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It's, I think that that would be an interesting journey that your love for each other and, and your love for God will just manifest itself and it will be able to just reveal what steps need to be taken. Yeah, and, but and, I mean, as, I t- as beautifully worded as it is, there is a major difference in our faiths. <laughs> there, there is one there's a major, major difference. <laughs> There's, There's a major, a major divide <laughs> where the road goes left or right. So, <laughs> I, and I use humor to say that, but it's true. Oh, There's man. a very, I'm just being honest. There's a big yeah. difference. Their core, is, but there are our core moral <laughs> compass beliefs, but then there's a, there's the Jesus part. And yeah. so it's like, that guy, that guy, that guy. So, <laughs> you know, and I have an uncle, my uh, uncle from Fort Worth, who is the best. Uh, What's his he's, name? He's amazing. His uncle Henry. He lives hey! in Forest Hill. Uncle Henry lives in Forest And my favorite picture of my Uncle Henry is with Moses and my husband. And my Uncle Henry has a purple shirt with gold writing that said, Jesus is coming. And I was like, oh my God. It's my favorite picture ever. Um, but then we do Christmas, ugly Ooh. Christmas sweaters. We wear, we do a big family photo. And my mom got Stephen an ugly Hanukkah sweater. So we all had our ugly Christmas sweaters on and she got him a little Hanukkah sweater so he wouldn't feel left out. So, I you love know, Uncle Henry. We're juggling. Uncle Henry. I love Uncle church, Henry. Jesus is coming. And that's what the Uncle shirt said Henry. with my husband, my Jewish husband sitting right there. It was amazing. The best ever. <laughs> and I promise you, Uncle Henry knew what he was doing. 
Oh I'm, yes, I'm, Uncle I'm, here <laughs> with his gold nugget rings on. <laughs> come on, come on, Fort Worth. Come on, Fort gold Worth. Gold nugget ring. Gold Ain't nobody else nugget. wearing gold nuggets in America except for people in Fort My Worth. My Uncle Henry with his Jesus is coming purple shirt on. I love it. My now, favorite uncle in the world. Now, Tamara, I didn't know this about you. I and and I need a little context. I did not know that you are this fictional writer. I didn't oh, know that you had these skill yeah. sets. I mean, it's like I know you can I dress. I know know it either. I that didn't you've got either. all this thing. Tell me about yeah. this. Tell me about this. Yeah. When I was uh in the pandemic in this house that I'm in right now, and just just looking for ways to not feel fearful, not feel like the world was coming to an end when we were on lockdown, especially here in New York, when everything had shut down. Mm. And for many, many years, um, I've covered, as we talked about, all kinds of crimes and stories that just you can't walk away from. You know this. People confide in you and they tell you their stories. And there's no way you can just walk away and forget some of the things that you've heard and seen in your journey. And for me, that happens to be the case with a lot of the stories and crimes that I've covered. In particular, there was a case uh, in Chicago, Ryan Harris, this young girl whose murder haunted me and still does. And so I started to write this novel about this character, Jordan Manning. Michael Jordan meets Peyton Manning. That's how I got her name. I think mm. I fell asleep on ESPN one night. And she's a reporter <laughs> on her ambitious way to becoming an anchor. But she also has now found herself compelled to cover these crimes. And in the first novel, there the dis there's a disappearance of a missing Black girl. And she discovers that it's not just one, it's multiple missing Black girls whose stories are being ignored. Mm. And so she takes off her reporter hat and starts to investigate these crimes to follow the leads where they are. So that is now out on paperback. I finished that. And now the second in the series, I just completed. But I'm very excited. I grew up reading Nancy Drew. You know, I had the Nancy Drew box set. And then when I went in to sell this book, I was told that a Black female writer had never written about a Black protagonist like this, mm. and it doesn't exist. And I'm like, what? And so I wrote this <laughs> uh, I wrote this novel. And then, you know, it was a reminder to me again, and I know you know this feeling, of stepping out of your comfort zone. You know, I wrote this book at 50. I can write a news story. I can write a journal entry. I'd never written a novel. But we all, at some point in our lives, should look and say, how do I step out of my comfort zone? And what mm -hmm. does that mean? And it can mean something small. It means something big. And for me, it was this big leap of faith in this world of writing. But to your point, I didn't know it was a skill set that I had. And I didn't know if it would be well received. I didn't know. But I, I recognize that this part of my life and at this portion of my journey, for me to continue to evolve and be better each and every day, I have to step out of comfort zones. I am proud to know that out of all of the accomplishments that you uh, have under your belt, that you still rock with the same people, that you still got the same homies. Yeah, I think that that is, I do. That is so admirable, that, that, that something about that grounding space, right? Like, it's very grounding. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's, it's, it's very grounding. And I'm so impressed to know that we know some of the same people from yeah. back in the day, and these are yeah. our people, and we love and them. They and, still love us. They still and they still love us, and they wouldn't care if we ever got another we are. award. They as crazy <laughs> as we are. They as love crazy us. As we are. Yes. What's next yeah. for you? Oh my gosh. Well, we're starting, as I said, this season, and I just finished the second book, and I've got this court TV show, Someone They Knew, which is a fascinating look at the realities of uh, people being betrayed. It's a, it's a really juicy show, and it's it's mm. it's it's. I, I didn't know if I wanted to do it at first, and now I'm hooked. Like you know, you turn on these prime shows, you're like, oh my god, is that my friend? Is my friend like that? It's <laughs> eye opening. Um, and just trying to, you know. 
support young journalists. I'm now um, on a foundation really making sure that young aspiring journalists are included in the pipeline. And through the National Association of Broadcasters, which we just announced, I'm now a part of their mission to make sure they're invited in the rooms, that the young Mm -hmm. journalists are invited in the rooms and that their voices are heard. I've had people often say, well, don't you want the best to get the job? Listen, a lot of times our kids don't even know the job is available. So we want to make sure that as many young producers, writers, because I know a lot of times people want to be on camera, but the power is behind the camera and in the executive offices. And so through um, the NAB, I'm working to make sure that in 2023 and beyond, you know, the next Tamron Hall doesn't have to stay in the corner and cry as many days as I had to cry, you know, and the next young man out there who can go into the executive office is supported by the industry so that he can become, you know, a legendary executive in the newsroom. So Mm -hmm. that's what my goal and that's what the next part of my life hopefully will look like is just making sure that the doors aren't closed on our kids. Does the dog have anything he wants to hear? She wants to say before they leave. I tell you, she is so unprofessional. Ladies and gentlemen, she likes short men and big dogs. Please help me show (laughs) help me show some love to my homegirl, to the masterclass specialist herself, from Fort Worth City to New York City. She's just changing the game for all of us, and she makes us so proud. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. From Good Words, Miss Tamron Hall. Oh, this is so sweet. Thank you. You are, I am so sorry about this dog. No, it's great. It is great. So thank y'all so much for listening to Good Words, man. I hope you are enjoying yourself. I hope you're, man, enjoying the journey that you're taking with your boy. And if you are, please do me a favor. Leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Can you do that for me? I'd appreciate it. And don't you forget... You can never go too far or you can't come back home. Good Words with Kirk Franklin is a collaboration between For Your Soul Entertainment, Sony Music Entertainment, Arts Inspiration, and something else. Produced by Janicia Francis with senior producer Danielle Jones-Wesley. Associate producers are Danya Abdelhamid, Rachel Chodar, and Kyra Asabe Bansu. It's executive produced by Ron Hill, Reese Brooks, Sarita Wesley, Tom Koenig, Hybrid Agency, and myself, your boy, Kirk Franklin. This episode was mixed by Calvin Bailiff, and special thanks to Charlie Yador and Steve Ackerman.